Welcome to the RNJ Yarn podcast. We love to interview innovators and big contributors in our society. And so, Jimmy, it's great to be sitting here with you post Oz Open. And I think I may have done a little bit better than you did with uh, the tips. Yeah, morning, Ron. Uh, firstly, before we get into the tips, um, what a final. Uh, Medvedev Nadal and... You know, I'll admit that I, like Medvedev, got into that game and two sets up, you know, I thought I was on the money, but, um, but you know, Nadal, what a fighter and, um, you know, never count out a champion, as they say. Yeah, he, he's there. He's won, you know, 21 slams for a reason, um, just has that unbelievable agility. Um, yeah, it was, it was hard not to watch, really, when you kind of got into it. I, it was an inc- incredible match. Recommend watching the highlights if you haven't seen it. But uh, yeah, getting back to the tips, um, it is true that you know you were on the money there, Ron, and provided good value, I thought, to the listeners as well, um, because some of your selections, you know, were you know they they, they weren't the favourites, and um, uh, Yannick Sinner, he was he played really well, and I think he's one for the future. Yeah. And uh, Swiatek was also, she was good. She, she sort of, um, she made the semis. Um, well, my selections were um, a little bit underwhelming. Uh, Zverev, of course, got bundled out early. And um, Halep, I think, was fairly early out. And then, of course, Demonor was, um, you know, he was, uh, he was knocked out by Sinner fairly comprehensively, I have to admit. Mm-hmm. So, I know, like, in, at the end of the day, though, it was kind of a tie. So what's going to happen with the lime blue coffee? We'll just swap bags or... No, I think you get the coffee, Ron. Uh, I think... Well, um, you, had, you had Barty. I so. did have Barty, but then remember, <laughs> I didn't allow you to select Medvedev, even though that, of course, would have backfired if you had picked Medvedev. I don't I still would have... Nadal was my second pick, mind you. My first pick was actually Sinner, and he was my second. So I would have had Nadal and Medvedev if I hadn't picked him. Well, I think what we'll do is we'll call one of them a tie, being the women's comp, and we'll say that you won the men's. And so we'll give you a bag of uh, lime blue coffee. Um, we'll see what the listeners think. They can um, say yeah. how. Okay, okay, okay. We'll see, we'll see what the social media says. But otherwise, I think one 400 gram bag is, um, is uh, very doable. Yeah, absolutely. And so today, who have we got? Yeah, well, I'm obviously uh, super excited about today's episode. Um, I've uh, I've read I've read our guest's mother's book, which was all about her experiences as a as a, as a horse racing trainer. But obviously, we're interviewing Tom Waterhouse now. Um, the thing is, Tom is such a multifaceted guy, and you know he's a former bookmaker. He's currently running his own uh, venture capital fund. He runs a tipping service for horse racing and sports betting, which is very good. He's part of a wonderful family that's involved in sort of racing and fashion and entrepreneurial activities with his mother, Gay, his dad, Rob, and his sister, Kate. And he's married to Hoda, and he's the father of their three children. And there's a lot to him. And I think we, I think we really touch on um, all the aspects in this interview. And he also picked those Open winners, didn't he? He did. He outdid me and Jimmy, so maybe we should be sending him the coffee. <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, and the last thing I just wanted to say is, you know, huge thanks to Tom for joining us. He was over in the UK um, while we interviewed him, 
Um, but yeah, I hope everyone loves the episode like we did. We really enjoyed catching up with him. Okay, so let's hear from Tom, and me and you will um, have a good yarn afterwards. Yeah, sounds good, mate. Welcome to episode 11 of the RJ Yarn, a podcast interviewing innovators in our society to find out what made them become the person they are today. And today's guest is Tom Waterhouse. Tom is perhaps best known for his involvement in the horse racing industry, but I like to think of Tom as the most innovative Waterhouse, bringing his family name into the tech space in the 2010s and more recently launching an investment fund on the ASX. So, Tom, a warm welcome to the RJ Yarn. How are you traveling today? Hey, Ron. Hey, Jimmy. Yeah, really good. Really good. I've, uh, I'm uh, in the UK at the moment and it's, uh, it's, it's cold and, uh, and gloomy, but a lot of fun. And, and uh, yeah, but I'm definitely missing the, the Sydney and Melbourne summer, that's for sure. Okay, sounds great. Sounds great, Tom. Now, I know you're a bit of a tipster, so we're going to kick off with just a couple of tough ones. Who's your pick to win the Men's and Women's Australian Open? Oh, Ash Barty in the women's. Um, and look, I just hope Nadal, because uh, I've been a <laughs> fan of him for a long time. But yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, I'm going for him rather than necessarily thinking he's good value. Okay, sounds <laughs> great. Now, I know that you mentioned it just before, but... Um, you did live in Melbourne for a few years. You're living up in Sydney these days. Uh, Ron and I are from Melbourne. Can you tell us what was your favourite thing about living in Melbourne? Well, I didn't really, uh, even though I was in Melbourne four years, I didn't really live a true, um, a, like a true Melbourne life. I, I was in Crown for four years and uh, and I, 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 I feel ashamed saying this, but I barely left the complex. I just, uh, <laughs> I, I literally, um, just it, it sort of for that time in my life it had everything I needed so I uh, I saw a lot of uh, a lot of crown and, and loved it but I got to like a few football matches and obviously went to all like the the Grand Prix and the tennis and and all that sort of stuff but I just loved the thing that um, I loved the sporting I loved the city I loved how everything was so close people were very warm um, very welcoming like coming from Sydney not really knowing that many people they were always inviting over for dinners and and, and out and it was just I, I really enjoyed it we would have stayed um uh we were in no rush to go back home but my my wife well, she we got married and, and then was going to have a baby and, and her family and my family they're both in sydney and, and so we moved back um and that was the end of living in a casino yeah wow. um okay next one next one tom i know, I know you've traveled very widely with horse racing you actually run um you take groups of people over to the UK to events and things. What would be your favourite horse racing event or carnival to attend? Oh, I love uh, going to Royal Ascot. It's uh, it's just so much fun. It's a great time to be in London during the summer, and and I like all the um, like top hat and tails and and the London nightlife and restaurants and and the fact the races don't start till two thirty in the afternoon. It's sort of real gentleman gentleman's hours. So. Um, I, I just think it's a it's a great meeting and 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 a lot of fun. Okay, I have to add that to the bucket list. 
Um, now, next one, Tom, is a lot of people, now this, the podcast isn't about betting per se, but we've got to cover it, I think. We've got to give the listeners some value. And a lot of punters have little golden rules. It might be pikey in the last. It might be grey horses in the wet. It might be uh, blinkers on first time. Is there any little golden rule that you like to follow? I just never chase your losses. It's, um, yeah, I stick to a formula, stick to um, uh, a process, um, be very clear with your staking and, uh, and yeah, never chase your loss. And I guess also if, if you've got something marked um, a short price and you're getting a very long price, you see a lot of people reducing their bet uh, where I like to go the opposite way. If I've got something marked very short or, really like something and, and the bigger the price is, the more you want to put on it. So um, you really want to uh, limit your losses and unlimit your wins. Okay, mm. sounds great. Last last of our quick fire questions, Tom. Let's say we're, you're back in Sydney, Sunday morning, the kids are up and uh, where would you be heading for a nice Sunday brunch with the family in Sydney? What's your recommendation? So I uh, we, we have nippers, um, we have nippers uh, every Sunday morning and then we come back and we do a big cook. Um, like uh, maybe just like steaks and sausages and um, wife does a few salads and, and that's basically every Sunday uh, for us. But if we, we do head out, we go like uh, Italian, like Fratelli Paradiso in, in, in Potts Point um, and or maybe occasionally some Chinese and uh, yeah, Mr. Wong's or something like that. But yeah, most of the time it's, it's steaks and sausages. Nice, Tom. So we want to talk a bit about what you're up to these days. So let's talk about waterhousevc.com. Um, um, like a lot of listeners will know you through bookmaking and horse selection services, um, well, you know, just the horse racing industry generally. Um, but in fact, you've started something quite different. So what sort of prompted you to start the VC business? So we sold um, TomWaterhouse.com to William Hill and then uh, William Hill bought a few businesses here in Australia, uh, Centibet, Sportingbet and the TomWaterhouse.com business, ran that, um, those businesses in Australia for them for four years and then bought back TomWaterhouse.com but on the condition not to go into betting again. So I would have naturally gone and probably been a bookie again or run an online betting business and that sort of two years of non-compete um, gave me time to think about, well, what else? Um, uh, to look at and we we started a uh, tipping business and odds aggregator business but um spent a lot of time thinking about what what type of businesses would we want to invest in invest into in the space and um we thought with the u.s opening up there was this it's quite easy to understand a tab corp or a caesars or an mgm or a flutter because those businesses are very similar they've got a certain amount of turnover you have to spend a certain amount of marketing certain amount of product and it um, you've got the same like lines of the PL. And we thought we had no edge in being able to understand whether Tabcorp or PointsBet or, um, or Caesars is more value. Uh, but we thought we had a big advantage having run William Hill and, and being in the space for a long period of time is what type of products these bookmakers would want and investing in those service providers to the, to the bookmaking industry. So um, that sort of started Waterhouse VC and we, we basically try and find businesses that uh, are providing services. So 
I'm in the UK at the moment. We've just gone to a business that provides uh, voice and, and text message uh, betting uh, service to, to bookmakers. So if you want to text your bet on Viber or uh, Telegram or one of those messaging services, or you want to speak your bet, they provide the technology that does that. Um, we're negotiating with a, an esports fixed odds data supplier at the moment. Um, basically, they have real-time feeds from uh, all the tournaments and then they use their uh, algorithms and, and uh, get their like large quants teams to price up these esport matches. So we really try and find uh, businesses and products that the bookmakers need. And then most of our due diligence is around the, the technology of it and the team understanding, well, how easy would it be to integrate? How easy is it to replicate? And, uh, and if we like it, we make an investment. And, uh, and yeah, hopefully over the long term, they turn out to be, to be great businesses and a, and a key parts of uh, the betting industry's ecosystem. Yeah, and that sounds great, Tom, that you, you do it that way. And um, I guess, you know, you're not like a typical financial grad background. So how do you then sort of, you know, find people to then help you work within that space, you know, to select companies um, and things like that? Is there a certain formula you have? Um, yeah, so it's, it's we, we have a, a team of like uh, analysts in the, in the business, but it's not a traditional fund in, in terms of understanding whether this business is, should be at 15 times earnings or 25 times earnings or 40 times revenue, mm-hmm. sorry, 10 times revenue or 20 times revenue. Uh, our business is really finding businesses that are, uh, at that earlier stage and have they got great technology and our sort of analysis is getting our tech team to really understand the product and can we get in at fair value but do they have a shot of going from a small business that doesn't provide that to the large bookmaking like uh, companies will they likely get into those ecosystems will they likely get into the likes of FanDuel, DraftKings, Caesars, MGM and if we think that technology is a, is a key part of it, of the ecosystem going forward, we think they've got a great shot. So it's more of an understanding of their technology rather than understanding whether their lines of the PL are, are value at this present point in time. It's, and that's sort of why we went down this path is we think we've got a, a big advantage when it comes to understanding what's important and what are key products for the bookmaking industry, where we don't have really any advantage of understanding whether uh, I, I don't know, sports that are going to grow revenues 20 or 30% this next quarter or this next half or next year. We're, that's not our um, area of expertise. And so, Tom, like it's really interesting you've been able to set up this fund sort of from, from scratch over the last what, couple of years. How easy has it been to... How, how did you go about that process of like raising a venture capital fund in terms of finding finding the money and that was... Was your previous work um, pretty useful in that space? Was it easy to find the backers? How did that all work Look, out? Um, we, the family it always is always invested in in the space, so it's we've always invested in the wagering and gaming space. But it's the only area like that I know. You know, I'm I'm not some wouldn't know anything about banking or mining or or technology like broadly like Google's and Facebooks and all this sort of stuff. But so we've always invested in the space, and I, I guess that. Um, starting out was like a lot of things was well look just taking it slowly you know just first first year was just very very small in terms of and making much smaller investments and and as you get time and build the team from 
compliance to uh, to the finance roles, to the like analysts, to the tech tech guys. It's just building it out, and as and as you have a bit of success, and you understand more about the space, and your confidence builds, and and it's um these things take a long sort of time. We I guess from I sort of think that this first five years of of running Waterhouse VC is 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 a lot of learning, you know. And and I guess hopefully I never stop learning in the space. But it, yeah, I uh, I uh, just thought I'd start out small and and just sort of learn as I go and and take my time with it. And in and no so rush, you know. I'm, what, not, I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to build some massive fund. Um, to I'm just happy just focusing on these businesses that I'd be looking at anyway, and and doing it through a fund vehicle. And so what is it that you look for in the staff that you hire? Well, they've got to be um, obviously very committed, very intelligent, um, uh, like highly driven um, team players, great to work with. Um, Yeah, it's, I guess, um, because I've uh, been in this industry for a long period of time now and, and, there were so many people in the team, both at TomWaterhouse.com and then in William Hill, uh, Australia. You sort of get to know a lot of people and see what works well and and who you work well with. And and sort of in the twenty years, there's been people I've been working for well over ten years of that that I'm still working with today. And and the others, I, I just hopefully want to find people that are very highly skilled, don't need me to micromanage them and and know what they're doing. And and um, and we want to work together long term. You know, it's it's the biggest pain when uh, someone you love working with wants to leave or do something else, and and that's you've got to provide an environment. Firstly, that they like working with you, um, and secondly, that you're both growing. You know, because if at least for me and and I, the people I work with, if it's still the same every day for the next ten years, it may may suit some people, but we want to be trying different things. Whether it's a an odds aggregator site or a tipping business or a, a fund or yeah, we just want to keep growing and learning different stuff and, and trying stuff and and doing it with people you like doing it with. Um, okay. Now, just now, while you've still got the VC fund going, Tom, you've also got TomWaterhouse.com going and um, and this is a lot of a lot of our listeners and, and viewers will kind of like know that from the services you provide on there. And I've been a user myself, Tom. I really enjoyed the uh, 20, t- 20 tips every Saturday. It's a great um, it's a great day in entertainment, really, with your mates. And overall, when you look at your stats on that on that website, you are actually up, which is which is a pretty good thing considering how much um, uh, sort of research goes into horse racing markets these days. It's pretty efficient. So I guess just, just at the beginning, what, what was like your motivation for setting up that bet service? It's that old question. I mean, if you if you've got an edge, why don't you just punt it yourself? Well, the issue was is is before um, the advertising restrictions in two thousand and eight, before the iPhone, before three G, the bookmaking market was really you had the paramutual through the tab, uh, and then you had you had the bookmakers in Darwin, but they couldn't uh, advertise, uh, so they were large but they weren't huge and and then you had a large on-course presence people weren't betting through their their phones they might call up and have a bet but the bookmaking on course was still very big so in 2008 i think i was turning over 300 million a year as an on-course bookie you know it's a a decent 
size business and there were plenty of bookies turning over large sums and to get on uh, on the rails to win 300 400 thousand was not a um, it was not a huge task 15 15 years ago but then you saw the lifting of the um, advertising restrictions and those bookmakers in the NT uh, really grew their business tomwaterhouse.com was one of them and then you saw the overseas bookmakers come in and the dynamics changed and that on-course market uh, and uh, the mix of uh, ability to get on if you had somewhat of an edge and, and the trading of bookmaking changed not only because of the advertiser restrictions and the shift of money on course but also the turnover taxes race fields legislation came in uh, in 2007 and you saw the increase in taxes from uh, around one percent of turnover to Probably it's around four-ish, uh, maybe with point of consumption, maybe a little bit more now. And so that's a significant increase. So for a customer that's a line ball customer, they have to be, you have to be making at least 4% margin as a bookmaker now. So the dynamics are very, very different from 15 years ago. So the ability to get on, um, bookies have to bet you to win 2,000 uh, at fixed odds. Well, there was... I had three or four bookies, but guaranteeing to win 100,000 per bet 15 years ago. So the ability to get on is is greatly reduced. And there, I thought it was more lucrative than trying to get on to win 2,000 with each bookie. If you've mm. got an edge and you and you understand about taking the top price and, and making sure you're staking correctly, that it was more lucrative doing it as a subscription business and having uh, many, uh, many, many smaller punters in a, in a group getting uh, tips and, and hopefully understanding how to win their betting and how to be a better better than it was trying to slog it away, trying to win 2000 with each bookie and hoping the price holds up. And, uh, and, and uh, I think it's been right. You know, the, the, the customer base, TomWaterhouse.com has been very sticky. And as you said, the long-term results have, have been very good, but it doesn't mean if you get the service, you're guaranteed winning because you've got to stick, Obviously, the staking plan, you've got to get the top price. You've got to make sure you follow the tips and not put your own ones in there. It's, a, it's still a tough task. It's not some easy uh, easy thing to do, you know. And so how do you sort of handle the volatility of betting? Like, is, is there a certain psychology in the way that you think about betting? Yeah, in that there's a, it's, I don't think about if it's a win or loss same as if, same way as I view the stock market, the stock market's off 8% or 10% or 15%. Like, I just don't think about it because if you believe that your strategy is right over time, you've got to keep analyzing and understanding whether the market's changed and the factors that you um, can win at have changed. But if you believe long term that you're investing, whether it's in the right companies or you're investing and getting on at the right price all the time and always beating the market well, you've got to have the bankroll to be able to withstand some serious drawdowns. And, and that's all about staking correctly and having the right bankroll. And if you don't have the right bankroll and you haven't staked correctly, well, obviously you're going to feel pressure. But if you have that, uh, yeah, there should never be a sleepless night. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's really, I honestly think this is the biggest thing. Like you can't be, in a way, to be an investor, and it's similar to be a better, really, you can't be riding the waves like emotionally um, of the ups and downs, whether it might be over one Saturday or over a week. And 
like Ron and I, we follow quite a few stocks and a lot of them are in like lithium or in, um, we've even, we had a bit of a play with uranium in that time and uranium's honestly, it's just up. Might be, some days, some days, you know, we're sort of very excited, aren't we, Ron? It might be up like 40% even, but mm. then other days it's down 30%. And um, if you sort of just take that to heart and say, well, you know, I've got to get out now, but I was all wrong. Then you just can't survive long term, can you, Tom? Like, so how did you learn that? Like, who did who? How did you get that well, kind of mindset? My my whole family has been in bookmaking for what grand, great grandfather in the eighteen hundreds. So everything is about um, probability, odds, staking, never chasing your losses, uh, like keeping a level head. Um, if you don't have those characteristics, you're going to go broke bookmaking. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, because it, 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 you can be winning or losing millions of dollars in, in a 20 minute period. You can think you're the king of the world and then suddenly three races in a row and you do a couple of million dollars. It's If you don't have that inside you, well, you'll just chase your losses and you'll lose 10 million one day and you're out of business and, and gone. So um, I guess it was just drummed into me and, and never thinking of it as gambling is, is if, do you have an edge to beat the market? And if you do, then you should play. And if you don't, well, then you're better off keeping your money in your pocket. And um, and also, when you think you have an edge, you don't necessarily always have an edge. So mm-hmm. keep don't, make sure you stake correctly because if you've got to keep assessing, well, do you actually have an edge here or not? Mm-hmm. And just one more on that one, Tom, uh, just because it's of special interest to me, but... Um, with the 20 on Saturday, you know, the Saturday, the, the main Saturday package, is there any reason you like the idea of having, say, 20 bets over a Saturday? Is the, is the number significant or is it because I mean, there's other, other services out there where people say, oh, look, I'll just give you one or two bets a week and um, just pile into them. Is it like, do you sort of think the diversification is a good thing or? Look, you're going to win a higher profit on turnover taking one or two bets. Like, it, if you have one better year, you're going to be very hard to beat. A bookie is going to really struggle to beat you if you go, well, I'm going to wait all year long until I see something amazing and I'm going to take it at the top price. Mm-hmm. Well, over a 10-year period, the bookie, it's a bit like if you ask someone, give me once every three years your best stock, stock pick or something. You know, it's, it, mm-hmm. if you actually minim, like keep to a bare minimum what you're actually selecting, you're hard to beat. But the reason why it's 20 is because to win enough on the, on the punt, if you're a serious better, um, you need turnover. You know, you, you can't, if you have uh, your one bet and you go, oh, well, I'm only going to bet once a year and I want to have a large bet on that one bet, the bookies won't let you on for enough. So if you're one of these punters that are trying to get volume up and some of our um, platinum members or big bundle members, they're, they're trying to get volume up. They're not looking for the highest profit on turnover. They're looking for actually the highest dollar number at the end of the year. Well, you need to have lots of bets to keep your turnover up and to keep... Uh, so, the, the, yeah, if, if you're looking for highest profit on turnover, taking the, the top 20 bets is probably well, is not as good as taking the top five or the top one, but it's it gives you volume. It gives probably for a more recreational member, it gives them lots of bets to play throughout the day. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, we, we believe that all 20 selections, uh, we've got them priced uh, shorter than what the market is showing at the time but it doesn't mean that they're as good a selection as our number one you know you're getting our 20th best selection Mm. and so moving on from that you also founded 
a listed reserve, an investment firm that specializes in decentralized technologies and blockchain um, assets. Um, and like, do you have a, a big belief in sort of these new digital currencies, um, the distribution ledge and, you know, that blockchain will kind of, is kind of the future? Is that kind of your mindset? Look, I only know of it really in any sort of, uh, to give you any sort of decent answer in this in from a, a gaming or gambling wagering perspective. And in 2014, we had, um, we were looking for lower cost centers uh, to build up our team. Um, and so we went what, through China and Taiwan and India and the Philippines and, and saw a lot of operators trying to get a gauge of how these operators were, um, were operating. And we saw a lot of operators during that time and they were turning over uh, 10 to 15 X what we were turning over. And they had only 20, 30 people in, in their team. And, what amazed me of the size of their operation, but they were taking bets in cryptocurrency. And I thought, well, I've never heard of these operations and they're 10, 15 times our size and they don't have many people working with them. How are they getting this volume of cryptocurrency? So that I hadn't really spent any time understanding Bitcoin or Litecoin or Monero or any of these type of coins, but I that spruced my interest and, and the CFO at the time he had it was very keen and had been uh, interested in the, in the space for or at least a couple of years before that. And so that sort of started the journey. And we did a lot of work um, with the CFO who, who became the CIO of Lister Reserve and, and also with Ari Klinger, uh, who was part of the Tim Draper Network, his, his, his company uh, at the time. And, and they'd done uh, a lot with um, in the cryptocurrency space. And... and um, so that sort of started the journey with with Lister Reserve, and I think the the only other area that we spent a lot of time now with the Waterhouse VC hat on is that there's such a growth from a gaming point of view uh, in the metaverse, like in like Decentraland. You're seeing like in in the US, you're seeing the large operators growing at uh, 100% year-on-year revenue growth. Well, in the metaverse, obviously, it's a lot. It's it's the size of the market from. Uh, just from a standing point, you go, oh, well, it couldn't be because the US, but the growth there is is off the charts. And and so we look at a lot of the service providers that might provide to the US or or to like these metaverses like Decentraland to try and understand what type of products are going to go in there. But I don't have a good understanding or a good enough understanding to give you a decent answer on whether um, from an investment point of view, you should be investing in Ethereum or Bitcoin or any of those um, cryptocurrencies. My focus is... Uh, of I hope Lister Reserve and, and a keen part of observer of that company goes great and it's in very good hands. I've worked with the people that, that run that business and know how talented and, and switched on they are. But for me as an um, individual, I, I just focus on the one space I know, which is which is wagering and, and gaming. So that's that's basically my broad, un, broad knowledge of the space. Mm, and so do you find that you kind of just follow the smartest people in that space at this stage? Cause it's kind of, um, you know, tricky to, to calculate all these things. Like I find blockchain personally, like, you know, pretty confusing in terms of, you know, what would be a good sort of crypto to bet on or, or purchase. Um, like with yeah. me and Jimmy, our investing, we'll often look at 
um, other smart people and kind of look at what sort of companies they're picking um, in that, you know, we find that that can be more effective than us trying to do all the research, which we still do. Um, I, I guess um, the way I view it is that for my main area that I try and uh, make money is in areas that I, that I actively involved in and actively managing and in the core area that I know. And then for more passive investment is then finding areas that are not correlated to that one area that I know that, mm. uh, that are run by talented people that have a great understanding of that space that I have trust in. And listed reserve definitely falls into that category. I, 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 I they're great operators there, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't view it as an active part of my portfolio because I, I stick for active investment into just the one. Uh, I only focus on the one industry. Hmm. Okay, right, Tom. Now, what we want to do, we did, we've done this interview in a slightly different format. Um, and now what we're going to do is going to go back to the beginning a wee bit, if you don't mind. And so just saying like, so how did you get to, you know, obviously you're so you're very knowledgeable, knowledgeable about what you're investing in and you've got a real passion for it, which is just so obvious to see. But I guess, how did you get here? And did, so have you come from a family? Well, I guess you definitely have come from a family of entrepreneurs and business people dating back to your great-grandfather, Charles Waterhouse, since he took out his uh, flat training license in 1898. But that entrepreneurial spirit that you've got, how do you think you got that yourself personally? Oh, look, um, I think I'm the first person I know in the family that took a job. You know, when I went around William Hill, uh, Australia, uh, they were like, what are you doing? Type thing, you know, it's it's just in, they're all, the whole family, whether it's from my mum, who's my whole life got up at five past two in the morning and, and worked all day to my dad who gets up at three in the morning to my grandfather who was in the office seven days a week, I think till he was 90 something. And my, my aunt works every day of the week. My sister is a hard worker. Like the whole family just works hard. And I guess if you, if you see that as a young kid, how hard that they're working and that their life is their work, you sort of like, well, that's just standard, you know? And, and I was lucky. I was at university and, my dad had said, do you want to come out and work a, a day at the races? And it just clicked. I just loved it. The first day I went there, I went, this is incredible. This the excitement, the theatre. Um, just, I was like, how do I do this more? And, and then when you, you're young and you love something, you just want to absorb as much as you can. So I just never stopped asking my dad and my grandfather questions. Worked every day at the races that I possibly could around university. And and then um, when my dad ever went away, I worked for him. And, and, and then when... Uh, I got a license at the dogs and then I worked with my grandfather and we went into partnership together and it was amazing getting the difference in the way that my dad bookmakes because he's such an analytical um, data-driven person where my grandfather was such a like gambler, big picture. Um, they were complete polar opposites in the way that they viewed bookmaking and to learn from both of them. And, and then um, yeah, and I, I guess success breeds success. And that's not to say I'm some ultra successful person or something, but you have a little bit of success, whether it's bookmaking or in business or something, and you're like, oh, well, that's great. I'm going to try some more. And, and then you might have a lot of failures along the way, but you want more of that success. So you just keep trying to go and go and go. And, and it's, it's, it's just fun. It's a fun game, isn't it, business? It's, um... I think, Tom, like, you know, I was complaining to Ron yesterday about, reading tax reports and things like that 50 page reports and but the key is 
you've just got to find that thing that's fun for you, isn't it? Or you've got energy for it. And is that, is that what you'd say you've done over your career to date? You've just, you've kind of followed the areas where you've got energy and the work comes easily. Is that sort of how you, for yourself yeah, and your family? I, I, and, and I guess um, is I've kept trying to try and do new things, but stick to where I've got a, a real, where I think I've got a real advantage, you know, and I've been really lucky to, um, I've grown up in in the family that has been all around horse racing and betting and, and this industry and and had the experience that I had in, in the industry myself the last twenty years. Well, how do I how do I capitalize on that and, and at the same time keep growing and changing? Because I would have loved to have been an on course bookie the way it was in two thousand and seven two thousand eight for the rest of my life. That that was amazing, but you can't stand still because the your surroundings and the external environment just keeps changing and keeps eating you up so you've got to keep evolving and keep changing and and keep tacking a new course because um anything that's good will it's not good forever forever and um and that's the exciting thing about evolving trying to adapt your skill set to the new environment and um yeah it makes it fun and so Jimmy has read your mum's book. And one thing that he really noted was the huge emphasis on your family background. And he said to me, it seems that your family all supports each other in your various um, endeavours, you know, popping up in your each other's social media posts. Is that sort of like a conscious thing? Um, has your sister and parents been a great support to, you know, the whole way through your business endeavours? Oh, yeah, 100%. Oh, they all have, but... Uh especially my dad in that, um, uh, like, I'm like, oh, do you think I could do this? Or do you think this would work? And he's like, oh, well, if you, if you want to do it and you, you're going to commit to it, of course it'll be a success. You know, he just like, he's just ultra <laughs> belief. And like, I've, I've been at the races three weeks or four weeks and he went to New Zealand on, on a trip and, and he said, oh, well, look, you run my stand. And I was 18 or 19. I had no experience. You can lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he just, gave me basically the keys to the business and do your best, Tom. These are a few rules you should try and stick to. Hope it goes well for you. And that belief, especially in a young kid, because you just don't know, you know, you're like, am I, uh, am I great at this or am I a dunce or am I, but when your dad believes in you, it gives you a lot of confidence, you know, and, and uh, confidence is, is, is an amazing advantage because you, you, you dare to try, don't you? And, and, and sometimes it comes off and you're like, oh, how good is that? I can do this. And, and it's like a snowball after that. And uh, so, yeah, he was, he was incredible like that. And my, um, and my mum, just that work ethic, you know, and, and she's just ultra straight shooter, says how it is, uh, like just disciplinarian, like keeps you in line. Because as a young kid, you, you want to go off, off the rails wherever you can, don't you? you know? So <laughs> she was ultra like, you got to do this and like, just, yeah, just they're good. They're very good parents. Okay, Tom. And, you know, you're a great family man yourself, uh, Marion Hoda back in uh, 2011. You can tell me if I pronounce that wrong in Italy and you have three children now. Um, there's a bit of a legendary story that um, uh, she sort of was helping you out, even taking bets on the running rails back in the day. Can you just tell us a bit, maybe how you guys met in... I'll, t- I'll tell you a funny story about her name in that. Um, so I called her Hoda, like Yoda, but with an H for the yeah. first 10 years of us knowing each other. And, and um, 
And I was, I said a friend's, a very good friend's name. I've been saying his name wrong. And his wife said to me, look, you've, like you're the godfather of our child. Like you've been saying the name wrong. Um, it's actually pronounced like this. And I said to her, I go, look, I'm so embarrassed because um, I've been saying my like, good mate's name wrong for all these years. And like, she goes, oh, well, it's not as bad as, as calling you. I think she was my fiance or something. Your fiance or whatever. Her name wrong since you met her. And I go, what do you mean? It's, it's Hoda. She goes, no, Tom, it's Hoda. And I'm like, it's what? <laughs> She's like, it's, it's Hoda. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, okay, so I went home and I, next time I spoke to my parents, I go, look, mum and dad, you know how I've been calling Hoda, Hoda? It's actually Hoda. And so <laughs> the next like time she came over for dinner or anywhere, they're like, hello, Hoda. And she's like, what? And they're like, hello, Hoda. And they, no one could quite pronounce it. She's like, look, guys, please, it's Hoda. Just call me Hoda. And so anyway, that went on for like six months, the family trying to say it. Anyway, I just felt like such an idiot. So yeah, call it. She calls it. She calls it. Whenever she meets someone, she goes, it's Hoda, like Yoda, but with an H. So um, yeah, you pronounced it correctly. Or at least you pronounce it the same way as I do. <laughs> And um and I think so. Um, has having your own family kind of helped you in business? Do you think, Tom? Has it been sort of a has it been a positive for you in terms of pursuing all these entrepreneurial interests and stuff that you're up to? Yeah, I think um it's a great settling thing in your life. At least was for me because when you're young, you want to go out all the time and and go out and talk, go out on dates with different girls and party and go and all this stuff. And, when you find the right person that you love, you, it's very settling. And, um, and you, you're really um, going, well, what's the long-term plan for us as a couple and, and also for as a family? And that, uh, from, a, a, from a personal point of view, it's an amazing thing. But from a business point of view, it's, a, it's an incredible thing because it really gives you drive to try and achieve stuff. And, and you're not only doing it for yourself, but your family and and having those long-term goals that, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's life-changing. I, it's, um, and then with kids, it's, um, yeah, I, it's, it's great. It's, I, I think it's hard from a, um, a work point of view that first two years, like it's, you got a lot less sleep and, and I, I went from doing a lot of reading to no reading. You're just sort of trying to keep your head above water. I know with William Hill, like, getting at the office before seven o'clock in the morning and coming home late and then with the kids it's, it's quite hard but now our kids are eight six and three it's just a, a really lovely time you know they're they're it's it's great and from a, a work perspective it's the only thing that's hard is that you want to get home and, and you don't want to miss that family time because it goes quickly you know? so um but no I, yeah being a dad and a husband is uh it's a it's one of the joys of uh or the it is the joy of life Mm -hmm. and so when you were yourself much younger um you decided to go and study um marketing and commerce at the university of sydney was that an easy decision for you to choose um yeah it was pretty easy to choose. So I studied commerce uh, <laughs> and, and majored in finance and marketing at I, I, school i went to i reckon there were 90 boys from that year that yeah. went into the exact same degree so i guess uh unless you just tick the same box as all of them but um yeah, of course, it was, it's, uh, it's, it was good. No, I guess the, uh, I guess the thing that is that I found studying and reading 
spend a lot more time and focus on it as I've got older mm. than at that time. Like I, I definitely, I, like, I didn't fail any courses at, uh, at Sydney Uni, but I definitely was more focused on getting to the races and being a bookie than I was making sure I went to every shoot. And, uh, and, and I'd looked at university probably more at that time as a social um, thing and getting through it and then getting to the races rather than I really want to learn about this. Where later in life, it's, no, I actually really want to learn more about this or I want to understand this or I want to be able to uh, have knowledge in this area. And that has, yeah, I, I think if I had that mindset of 10, 15 years later, I would have spent a lot more time studying university. But back 20 years ago, no, I was uh, let's get through this as quickly as possible so I can do the races every day of the week. Yeah. So do you think you developed any of your entrepreneurial skills while you were studying? Like, was there any particular topics you chose or do you think that was more kind of at home when you were, you know, with mum and dad and, and the rest of the, the crew? Look, I think um, what, so it's, it's hard because I basically went to working full time. Like I was working with dogs mm. Saturday night. I was working at the provincial races. I was working at the metropolitan races as a clerk for my dad. Um, and it was a, like, and bookmaking is not some like nine to five, seven days a week. It's you're in there. Um, you're in there like Wednesdays, Thursdays, maybe Thursday night, Friday and a Saturday or maybe a Sunday meeting, but you have Monday, Tuesday nearly always off. Um, and so it's not like I'm slogging away 80 hour week sort of thing, but it's, um, but I guess what a university is that surrounding yourself with very smart people and making sure that I guess, uh, I tried to make sure that I was around smart people that could, in the areas I found difficult, like some people grow up um, when I was doing the finance part of the degree, they grow up when their dads are, uh, run funds or stockbrokers and, and their area, they just, they go, oh, well, I understand. It's like if you ask me stuff about the racetrack, I've grown up hearing everything about my parents talking about racing and stuff. And so I think that area is, if you don't know some, something, try and find the smartest person you do and, and it's not all about me to be a success you don't go alone do you? you need to go with a group of people that are highly skilled and complement you in um in different areas and i definitely found that at university because there were some bits that i was like like in econometrics or something i was like what are they talking about when i first got there but you need to find people that are just at second nature to them and they can explain it to you like you're a five-year-old you know it's um and that definitely started that journey, I think, there. And that's been very helpful um, mm. in, in business because you've got to find the right people to compliment. Yeah. And so, Tom, basically what happened is you took that decision, you got into the bookmaking, and you turned, your, you turned that business that you'd created in university into TomWaterhouse.com. And then over the next 10 so, years... Yeah. So sort of. It, we, so I was as a bookie at university then i went into partnership with my grandfather and we went yes. from being uh, smallest bookies there uh, in the outer in the interstate to holding more money than all the other bookies combined on the rails at, in in melbourne so the race fields came in i then sydney my grandfather stayed in sydney and i went down as a uh, under my own license in victoria and worked in victoria for the next um four four years or so um but during that time down there the advertising restrictions got lifted and we pivoted to online and started TomWaterhouse.com in about 2009. And that went from 100 customers to 
a quarter of a million customers in 18 months. It just really, um, it really took off in terms of customer numbers. But then the external environment changed again. All of these overseas operators came in and the advertising costs went through the roof and also the technology costs. So um, it wasn't unusual for these, from we were spending sub a million dollars on tech in 2008, 2009. Well, for these companies to be spending now 30, 50, $80 million on technology is, it's, is not out of the realms. And, and so we needed to ramp up to keep up and keep scale and keep up with the increasing taxes and competition. And then we sold um, to William Hill in 2013. Mm. So must obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's probably a great fever in your cap to have grown a business from something so small, created it yourself in Melbourne through to actually selling it to a, to a massive corporate. Now, Tom, we've got to, we've got to keep a, um, we've got a challenger here, Tom. And yep. um so I think, you know, we've got, obviously, Ron's a little bit younger than myself. He's just coming out of uni here in Melbourne. And, <clears throat> like, I think we'd be keen to talk about, like, the social license to operate for horse racing a little bit. And yep. um, how do you sort of see those issues? Because there is, like, a little bit of a growing um, concern, isn't there, amongst some younger people about uh, animal welfare and things like that. So how do you sort of see it? Well, I sort of... Um see it through listening to my mum uh, talk about it and, and my own experience with riding and, and uh, having horses growing up is, is that like uh, they just love the horses you know like it's uh, whether like my pony growing up used to follow me into I, I didn't need to leave it would follow me to the bathroom it would follow me like down the street uh, and these horses uh, are loved and uh amazingly taken care of and their thoroughbred is a is a group of horses unlike many other breeds of horses that have, have either become extinct or basically gone to um very very small numbers they're a group of uh, a breed of horses that are that have flourished and so I, I see it through those glasses because i hear the passion that my mum has for these horses and the care she takes for them and the way she describes it is how much they enjoy that um, competition of basically going out there and, and, and racing and, and how well taken care of their own boxes and, and out in the paddocks. And, and I see like the, the amazing farms that they're on. So uh, it's, and that again, from the other side, that might be, oh, well, look, you've got a completely distorted colored view, but I, that's how I've grown up and that's how I've been around horses. So I, I don't, uh, I, it's it's one view, but it's probably it's really coloured my thinking to going. Well, these people obviously don't aren't around horses that much, or aren't around these horses, or aren't part of this industry. But it's um, but yeah, I I I agree with you. It's definitely a growing um, sentiment in the community than when I was uh, an on course bookie ten, fifteen, or fifteen years ago. It's uh, you never really hear about it where you you see those protests. Um, when it comes to the big races there it's definitely become a, a louder voice yeah because like what are you sort of your thoughts on like the post racing life a lot of horses because a lot of them they do obviously get treated really well with like medical um like checks and stuff for the racing and and obviously like in the big races there's heaps of teams around the horses and things like that 
Yeah. Um, but you know, there's a lot of lower division um horse horses that race and things like that. And not and for a lot of the owners and stuff, it can be unfortunately quite expensive in a way to kind yeah. of, you know, keep the horses and, and unfortunately um they often aren't kept. Um what are sort of your thoughts on like do you think there should be more sort of rules around that or Look, I'm not across in terms of what the actual current rules are. And the thing that um, has impressed me about the industry is that they've really ramped up in terms of and made it, no, this has to happen, is that there has to be aftercare of the horses. So, uh, and this is mainly me reading about what um, Racing New South Wales has done and, and really put it at the forefront. Well, no, you can have put all this money into horses and prize money to make sure they've got a great life during racing. But we, if we're going to be long-term guardians of this industry, we need to make sure that they're, uh, they're not just the most amazing pets and most amazing animals and all this sort of stuff while they're racing and making money. Uh, they've got a lifetime of that. And uh, I don't know what the current rule is from a national perspective. I've only just seen how a lot of these racing boards have got on the front foot and made it the focus you know and and but yeah so i don't know what the current up to date um mm. up to date like not pol- rule or policy is but i definitely know it's it's become a real focus that the industry has taken on i think especially over this last five years like definitely hear a lot more about it than than i did 15 20 years ago you know yeah, it's one of those things, like, I think it's good that there's more awareness of it now. And hopefully, you know, they, people can hopefully see horses more as pets, like your mum and a lot of great lovers of the industry. Because, um, I, I mean, I, I feel like there's a few people that see it more as an investment. Um, but, yeah. Um, so, regards to your VC funds, which um, invest in wagering and gambling, gambling products, um what are your thoughts on like problem gambling and and things like that we don't uh, invest in any of the operators we're, we're, we we don't focus on the operators you know we focus on the service providers but i think that the putting my operator hat on from back when i was running it is again a little bit like the uh, the horse welfare issue is you can't have a license to operate now if you don't basically make sure you've got all the measures in place from a um like gambling responsibly protecting people knowing when uh if your members are, are showing um signs of their betting irregularly what money source from and is the solution that they've got in place perfect today i don't know i assume it's not but it's definitely evolved from where it was 20 years ago you know and and it's the pressure is coming what i found find is interesting is that the pressure is coming not just from the regulator's point of view, which has exerted a lot of pressure over the last 10 years, but it's actually coming from the operator's point of view because they're like, well, look, if we want to be in this business long-term and we want this to be regulated and we want to have a license to operate, well, it's no good coming and being late to the party and, and doing this once we're told or slapped on the wrist. Well, we need to get on the front foot and actually... Um, basically be doing more than what the regulator is asking and the area that that's happened far quicker than i thought is actually in the us and i think it's 
motivated all the operators globally to do it is they haven't gone, well, let's wait three years for us to get re regulated about these uh, harm minimization issues. They've actually gone, well, actually, let's get groups together. Let's agree what we're going to principles. Let's make sure that we've got these harm measures in place. So uh, I think on both those issues you mentioned is it's not perfect, but I think there's definitely a focus and a drive from both sides of the industry to really focus to improve. Um, okay, Tom, now I like those responses. Um, I'm a big believer in the industry and I think I really like the way you're, you're saying that it's really just about we've got, to, we've got to improve and we've got to kind of just get, you know, we've got to really get that social license to operate for a, for a younger a younger audience so we can keep enjoying it into the future. That's what I'm about. Um, now, Tom, we've, um, so like in terms of your entrepreneurial spirit and you're running all these businesses, you've got so much going on. Is there any sort of uh, life hacks or uh, um, something that you could recommend to the listeners in terms of how you sort of operate at such a high level and stay across um, sort of different industries and different opportunities in these industries? How do you stay sharp? I try not to waste time, which is hard. You know, you, you, you can get caught in like, like, oh, well, I'll just breeze through TikTok for like an hour. You know, <laughs> yeah. I try and avoid all that stuff if I can. Uh, I try and read as much as possible. I try and um, make sure that like I'm thinking about not only where I want to go, but hopefully the, the people I can go on that journey with and, and that it's, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's really hard to achieve your goals if you want to go alone you know you've got to you've got to be with the right group of people and 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 basically go on a journey with people you love working with that are highly skilled um and yeah i, I don't know if i have like I, i'm not like some ultra like i'm not some yeah like, jimmy wasn't sure if he did like yoga stuff. in the morning or no no or like, like, I just, <laughs> meditation I just, or... I just like working and, and yeah. Give it a give it a go. Yeah, like yeah, have a crack at it. I'm not some. <laughs> I don't view myself as some business guru or something. I'm just like I like working and and like the industry and that's sort of it. And so the last question that we like to ask our guest Tom is, you know, we're here at the Arm. We're all about supporting um, um, support for mental health and mental well-being. And so we just wanted to ask you: Is there any charities that you want to shout out? In this episode and we'll put it in the link um, below well I, I think the, it's sort of I don't know if this is selfish or something but you sort of want to go to the, the charities that you think that you're like uh, I, I don't know is it important for your part of your life and, and so all of our like charity that we're supported is around um, like kids, Sydney Children's Hospital, these type of things and I, I, I don't know if that's selfish or it's just the time you think or or it's the stuff that comes up in, in front of us because of this time um and but i have to say my wife is a lot more like focused in that area than than i am i know that sounds so bad but i just uh, like i love being supporting it and, and when she goes oh what about this or what about we do this or then i'm i'm very supportive of it, but i'm not it's not naturally the first thing that goes into my mind oh well i've woken up this morning i'm going to go and i'm not some saint that goes oh, i'm going to go and help this charity actually the first thing that i think about is oh what am i doing for work today you know and, and that's mm -hmm. 
and hopefully that that evolves over time. But it's um yeah the the focus is training. And also my um my wife yeah she she's like she's much more way more into it than me. Like she like yeah she's she's on top of all that stuff. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us today here on the RJ Yarn. Um, we really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Ron. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Tom. Much appreciated. Well, Ron, that was just um, really inspirational uh, chat. I thought um, I really I took a lot out. I took a lot out from Tom in terms of the like just the example he sets in terms of just being really passionate about something being focused and and really uh kind of pursuing it um i think that was probably the first thing that the that i sort of took out of it was just sort of work out kind of what what it is you want to do from a work sense and just commit to it 100 percent and be passionate about it and you know you're very likely to be successful um so uh, and I think a good example of that actually was when, remember, we asked him some questions about crypto and stuff, and, um, and he sort of said, well, that's not really my area of expertise, you know? Because mm. um, mm. every time something sort of ended in terms of him selling his um, online betting website and things like that, mm. he, he could have gone on and tried to do other things outside his kind of expertise, which he, which he sort of did. Mm. But at the end of the day, he made sure he stuck to what he sort of knew in a way. And kind of found other ways to use what resources and the you know the sort of knowledge he had to then develop other things. Like he's now got the fund, and that just focuses on kind of the industry that he's been working in his whole yeah. life. I think it's I think it's such a clever thing he's done. Like, so he had the bookmaking business, and and what what he and for reasons of um, like competition and sort of he's got non compete clauses, so he can't do that. But what he was saying was, well, who knows like which is going to be the winner in terms of sports bet or TAB or top sport or whatever, right? But what he does know is that all of those companies are going to need these services, which, and I think he mentioned it in the show around like new, even new services like voice betting, text betting, all these sort of things. So it's so clever, isn't it? He kind of knows the industry and he's just finding new ways to kind of find... Leverage off it, yeah. Yeah, Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so then we also asked him some tough questions on animal welfare, which I think is good. I think um, if we're going to be talking about that industry, it's important that we kind of look at all sides of it. Um, but, you know, like I think like the thing with me with, with animal welfare is I kind of think about like the Olympics. And I think, you know, if someone was in a running race and they like tore a hamstring or something it was kind of like career-ending sort of injury um you know you don't just put the person down whereas in in horse racing um if there's kind of like a career-ending injury it comes into question the financials of kind of um keeping that horse in your like looking after it and and stuff like that i think you know there's a different sort of look to it um and i just think yeah animals are kind of have a different level of value to other um, species um, but like I think what I did like though is um, 
he did sort of agree with that. He, he did say that people, like there should be more regulations and, and things, like it needs to be reviewed in a way. Um, so I thought it was all pretty positive um, yeah. and all that. Yeah, like it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, it's just not the sort of issue. It's funny how like society's changed, isn't it? Well, like it's not the sort of thing that was thought about heaps, um, you know, even 10, 50, you know, 50 years ago. And it's, um, I think it's, you know, I think the, the, the way I look at it is it's so important that horse racing and, you know, um, there's other there's other sort of things you could say the same. But um, it's so important that they kind of address it because, you know, they've got to be attracting, um, you know, young people into the industry, you know, young good people in the industry like yourself, Ron, and so, um, you know, so they can't, we, you know, they can't just leave, it can't be not relevant to young people, so um, so I think Tom definitely took the question really seriously, and, um, uh, and I think, um, I know, like, give some credit to, say, Racing Victoria, for the um, Melbourne Cup this year, what, one of the things they brought in was every horse that comes... Uh, that wants to run in the Melbourne Cup has to get has to get vetted by an independent vet by a Racing Victoria vet, just to make sure it's um, it's actually up for that race. But I don't think I don't think there's ever been much doubt in terms of like that. Maybe there is some misinformation. People say that horses always hate racing and stuff. That there probably is some horses that don't enjoy being a racehorse. Um, but I think I think there's great sort of management of horses prior to racing the more sort of things should be more kind of like sanctuaries and things for horses yeah. in the post racing life um you know once when they're no longer an asset and they're a liability that's kind of when i think there needs to be more kind of a spotlight on that sort of area um and i think it's just going to be really challenging for horse racing if i'm completely honest i'm not sure how many how long it will kind of be around because um, I think you know, there's, Tom even talked about investing in esports and things like that. Now, um, it, it might be something that is, is still around, but I think like all these small sort of race courses will sort of phase out over time, and there might just be like the Melbourne Cup, and you know, it won't be as huge a deal. Um, but I could be wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Um there's one great organisation that we'll give a little shout out to in this regard called um, Living Legends, which is out near um, Melbourne Airport, and that's where you'll find like past Melbourne Cup winning horses, and that was set up by Racing Victoria exactly for that purpose to house um, retired racehorses. But I think, I th- but I think the point you you made a little bit it was that. Um, what about all the horses that don't do don't get get that far? You know what I mean? And um, and I think that is a real issue. And may and maybe there's a few, you know maybe there's too many. Um, maybe we are breeding overbreeding a wee bit because maybe we've got to get it down to a sustainable level where all the horses you know they can be rehomed afterwards. Um, but it's a but but it is a bit of a tricky issue and um, it might be one easy 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 solution <laughs> just. Uh, watch something else but <laughs> I mean yeah anyway um, okay so um, another aspect that um, uh, we touched on 
was around basically his philosophy on, on betting and a lot of people I think a lot of listeners Ron, will be, would, have, would have been interested in kind of getting some tips off Tom in terms of uh, how he goes about selecting, selecting winners and that and I thought one of the key takeouts he had was around um, uh, a lot of people when they like something whether it be a horse or it might be a tennis player or it might be a AFL team on a Saturday afternoon and then they see wow they're paying big odds what they actually do is reduce their stake and he was saying that that's a really big mistake because you are you know you've really got to be very methodical about saying well what's your conviction level and then regardless of what that stake is you know you've got to um you've got to put the bet on at that level and not sort of and not sort of lose your nerve a wee bit and, and in a way, I think it's I think that sort of trading mindset, investing mindset, doesn't only apply to sports betting. Or, you know, it actually applies to investing and things like that as well. Ron, like, um, you know, not kind of like letting like you like about if you look at our investing, um, and when we talk to Sergio, Sergio always comes back to let you, your winners run, and then you cut your losers short. So like if you if you pick something and after ten after a year or whatever it's dropped ten percent, you might start start selling it off. Whereas if you've then put a bit little bit of money maybe in like a smaller cap stock and that's been going really well, then you know you should be upping your stake and having you should be having more in that and and, and you know making you know a bigger play on it. Um, and that's kind of what he was saying like the the ones that have higher odds let them run a bit. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So it's all it's all kind of ties into it yeah, doesn't it it is similar it, way of thinking and it's just about having that really kind of um, disciplined mindset you know like so um, and, he, and he got that from his family didn't he he did yeah like I loved how he said you know his family were all big supporters of each other gave each other a lot of confidence and and you know like obviously his dad and, and stuff they were they're kind of obsessive in a way in how determined they are to do well um, you know, with all the, the stuff that happened there, but yeah, I think um, you know he said that you know when he was growing up, um, uh, you know his mum got up at I think it might have been two thirty in the morning. His dad, oh, I think, get, I think his dad got up at like four, and the mum got up at five or something. Yeah, but they're both getting up really early, and, and you know you just seen that work ethic, and that's obviously flowed onto him. And one last thing I'll say about that, Ron, was I love the comment. He made a comment about his dad. His dad said to him, I think early on in his career, his dad said, well, well, look, Tom, if, if that's what you want to do and you're going to commit to it, then of course it'll be a success. And I thought that was a really, um, really powerful message that he got. Mm, absolutely. And I just want to shout out the um, charity that Tom chose, Sydney Children's Hospital, um, doing great things over there and um, make sure you check it out we'll put it in the description below um, so who do we have next week Jimmy? well next week it's going to be good we're back to Melbourne in fact we're down in um, Caulfield and we're going to go to a cafe and it's a really special cafe it's not just about the coffee run it's about it's a cafe that gives employment opportunities to people with a disability and there's a really fascinating backstory to this and make sure you uh, tune in Absolutely. It was a great chat. Okay. Yeah. See you next okay. week. Thanks, guys. Make sure to uh, check it out and stuff.